But there's something that's just so appealing about that the kind of social ontology, or I hate the O word, account of sociality that he... The O word? <laughs> I hate the O word, yeah. Owen. <laughs> Philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Will. Hey, man. Owen. Hey. And Lillian. Hey, Gil. So it's finally time for us to talk about Spinoza. Uh, this episode's been a long time coming for a lot of reasons, but it's happening now uh, because it was formally requested by one of our bourgeois patrons on Patreon. So I'd like to start this episode by giving a shout out to Mina Beck. Thanks so much for your support. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all of our patrons. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Spinoza was a Jewish philosopher who lived in Amsterdam in the 1600s, uh, just in the wake of Descartes and Hobbes. In his short life, he managed to get excommunicated from the Jewish community, grind a bunch of lenses, make spiders fight each other, and make a lot of people very angry with his brain. Uh, everyone loves to quote the text of his excommunication, which is really dope, and I do recommend that you go read it. But I wanted to share something else to give you a sense for his reputation. So in 1670, when he anonymously published the Theological Political Treatise, it was like immediately banned all across Europe. And the South Holland Synod, this church organization, declared that it was, and I quote, the vilest and most sacrilegious book the world has ever seen. So most famously, Spinoza is associated with pantheism, the idea that there's only one substance, God or nature, which is coextensive with and not separate from the world. Uh, he's also a strict determinist who buys into a very strong formulation of the principle of sufficient reason, who argues that free will in this form of spontaneous self-determination is, is strictly impossible. Everything that happens, according to Spinoza, happens with perfect necessity, while at the same time, he absolutely refuses teleology in nature or in history. And finally, he rejects metaphysical dualism, arguing that the mind and the body are actually one and the same thing, just viewed from two different perspectives. Spinoza is one of the great dogmatic rationalists that Kant had in mind when he set out to restrict metaphysical speculation. And yet every one of Kant's immediate successors, Fichte, Maimon, Schelling, and Hegel, all tried to rehabilitate some form of Spinoza's metaphysics right after the critical turn. These days, Spinoza is often read as a radical political thinker. Throughout the latter half of the 20th century, he had a profound influence on whole generations of French and Italian political theorists especially. I think there are good reasons for this. Spinoza gives us excellent resources for thinking about ideology critique, uh, relationships between power and affect, and the nature of desiring subjects and sovereignty. However, I also think, as I've said elsewhere, some of this more recent tradition is a little too quick to assimilate Spinoza to its own materialist commitments, and it tends to overlook some of the more troubling aspects of Spinoza's thought. And maybe today we'll get into a little bit about why he's both appealing to thinkers of emancipa emancipation, but at the same time maybe presents some deep problems for critical social theory. So for today, I asked us to take a look at part four of the ethics, which is of human bondage or the powers of the affects, and the first couple of chapters of the political treatise, an unfinished manuscript that, like the ethics, was only published posthumously. There's a whole lot to talk about, um, but I'm just going to throw out here a few themes that I think these two texts share to try to get things going. 
there's first of all his like methodological commitment to the unreasonable and passionate character of human beings when we're formulating political theory. He's got this strict identification of power and natural right. And he has this apparently contradictory way of thinking about human sociability, where it seems both like human beings are natural enemies, but at the same time are like the greatest and most valuable, most important thing for one another. So we get sort of both homo homini lupus and homo homini deus, right? This sort of way in which we're both drawn to and conflictual at the same time. So there's so much more I could say, as you all know, Spinoza is very near and dear to me, um, and I could go on forever and ever, but I kind of wanted to just kind of lay this out a little bit and toss it to you all and, and see what you all thought about what we looked at for today. Okay, I'll jump in because, you know, I'm always going to want to ask you this question, Gil. So I, I think I could make the argument of how it makes sense, but I want to hear your response. So on the one hand, passions are the affects. Like, you know, an affects can be sadness or, or joy, even fear and hope. They are, and I think this is right, they are unreasonable. They don't follow the dictates of reason. Yet with uh, Spinoza's necessitarianism, you know, so how does the unreasonable and necessity work together? So I'm wondering, you know, how does it make sense for Spinoza wanting to counsel us towards the dictates of reason, yet at the same time understanding that it seems we inevitably have these passions and affects, that we inevitably act in unreasonably and irrationally? Is that too necessary? And if so, how can it be critiqued? And also, like, what's an affect? Yeah, that's a really good question. So to start with Lillian's um, clarificatory question, Spinoza defines an affect as like a modification or an affection of the body or of the mind accompanied by the image that we form of it, this idea that we have of it. So, you know, just like as a simple example, when I love someone, right, this is an affect that I have toward them based on my imaginary understanding of who and what they are and how they affect me. So literally like an effect is like, has to do with like being affected by a thing yes. and that can be a mental representation of fantasy imagination passion yeah okay. yeah it's always bound up with the imagination insofar as like this is a, a a way that i feel based on based on a certain form of representation of the thing external to myself now that can be unreasonable it doesn't it's not always unreasonable to to your point well so your question was like you know you know, they don't follow the order of reasons. That's true sometimes and in some ways and not in others. So let me just try to unpack that a little bit. When there's a joyful affect, right, like like love, for instance, that he thinks does conform with reason. It maybe doesn't have the same shape as like a rational understanding of something, but that agrees with reason. Sad passions don't, right? And this is where we start getting to the problems. So, you know, there are joyful affects and there are sad affects and the sad affects are the ones we call passions. And Sad passions are ones that involve hatred of a thing based on my imagination of it. It'll lead me to want to destroy it. You know, it'll, it'll lead me down these like pathways. Uh, it'll involve my impotence, my passivity, my lack of understanding. That's still necessary that it happens, right? To circle back to your question, right? Like the, that we are um, determined in these unreasonable ways does follow a kind of order of reasons, right? But from our perspective, there's there's misunderstandings, there's lack of understandings, or partiality maybe is the best way to talk about it, right? We only have partial understandings of the nature of our own situations and our affections. So the tricky thing, as you said, right, is like how do we like, what does it actually look like to try to counsel someone to follow the dictates of reason when it seems like 
you know, this, these sadnesses just happen to us. And they, they, they are, in fact, out of our power, out of our control. And some days, I think I know how to answer that question. And some days I don't. I, think I hope today's one of those days. <laughs> yeah, I think hopefully today's the day where I think I understand. But I think that one thing we could say is that, you know, sadnesses, hatreds, they're always going to be, he thinks, just like, just by definition, they're always going to involve a partiality, right? A, um, a, 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 an inadequate understanding of things. And I think that there are like, you know, in, in really concrete and practical terms, like very simple things that you can do to try to undo these negative affective ties that start to bind us in the encounters that we form. And when we start to do that, you know, the first thing to do is to try to come to understand how we're being affected and why. And like from there, you know, we're now we're, we're now we're off and running with the understanding. And he thinks that that's the that's the way forward. So what what propels what propels us beyond sad passions than for Spinoza is a greater adequacy of our ideas, right? Like more understanding propels us beyond those sad passions. But one of the things I find, and maybe you can help me with this, that I find a little bit confusing sometimes, is Spinoza will also claim that affects can only be kind of restrained or taken away or affected by other affects, right? So it's not always clear to me how much power the understanding has to actually alter, yeah, how much it has over sad passions compared to, you know, the presence of joyful passions, which I know the understanding are a part of, sorry, joyful affects, and I know the understanding of form a part, forms a part of the joyful affects, but, but could you just say something about the, uh, how it is that we are supposed to become, for Spinoza, active and joyful in relation to these sad passions, whether it's primarily through the influence of other affects or through the understanding and the use of reason and maybe how those things kind of go together. So I had the same reaction to this text because I haven't read Spinoza for many years and I recall a certain way of talking about like the principle of sufficient reason and mostly debate the debate about determinism. And I read this and I just thought, I actually don't understand anymore what reason is at all. And so like it would kind of be helpful to try to understand for me the relationship between reason and the affects such that you can talk about like how we understand things better or worse that isn't just like a symptom of powerlessness. Like it's true that when I feel powerless that I am, I, I seem to not understand things. Like I, there's something very intuitive about this view, but then it's like, what are my criteria for my better or worse understanding? Is it literally just the way it affects me? And I assume that's not true. So it has to do with knowledge of causes versus knowledge of yeah. effects, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that that was one of the more intuitive parts for me of when he was saying, you know, and I, I translated it as reason on its own is not enough to overcome sad affects. Because then I immediately think something along the lines of, OK, I'm sad because so and so broke up with me. Them telling me why they broke up with me and me understanding that doesn't actually more often than not ameliorate mm -hmm. my sadness. Right. You know, and yeah. so I kind of understood that as, you know, you know, it would be inappropriate to represent Spinoza as the type of rationalist who is saying something along the lines of, do just think, and then you won't feel <laughs> things. That yeah, is yeah. definitely mm -hmm. not what Spinoza is saying. That sounds like actually a recipe for extreme social pathology. Like, <laughs> yeah. <just> like <laughs> rationalize your way out away from your own feelings and then you will feel better that doesn't that hasn't worked for anyone i know including myself so yeah right yeah so i first of all think that descriptively the claim just seems true 
right? That like on its own, the truth just is not sufficient to 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 respond to, to ameliorate, or to get rid of passions or, or affects. That just seems correct in my experience, at least, and I think in yours as well. And so the example that you gave is a nice one. But also, I think I like this example too because I also think that we can start to see like how he thinks this does work. So it is about coming to understand causes. Like reason is, as Owen said, understanding things as caused as necessary. He'll say things like, it's of the nature of reason to understand things as necessary or you know, the, his other technical language for this from the, under the aspect of eternity, as opposed to as contingent or as uncaused or as free or as like caused in a different kind of way. He thinks that teleological stories are actually bad ways of making sense of things. But when we understand things, there's a joy involved in understanding, right? And so it's not the case that just like thinking about something kind of dispassionately is going to be sufficient to get rid of a sad passion. But the joy involved in understanding something's necessity can start to work against it. So like if you think of the case of like, you know, getting dumped by someone, I think the first step would be you could hate them for that, right? You could hate them for that, for hurting you in this way. But Spinoza would want us to say, that the greater the degree to which we understand why they had to do this, why it was necessary for them to act in this way, why, in fact, it may actually have been the case that your nature and theirs were incompatible, mm -hmm. then you no longer hate them. There's less cause to hate them, right? Speak and now, for and yourself. Now <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oscillate that motherfucker. Oscillation. Vacillation of mind. Vacillation of mind, right? So coming to understand involves this joy, and there is this, there's this power. There's this power of conceiving and of understanding that he thinks has the joy bound up with it. And so he'll say things like, look, it, again, sort of descriptively, I think this has to be right. He's like, we just strive to experience joy. We, we go after whatever it is that we that makes us feel good, that makes us happy, that for us is often bound up with understanding and becoming active is just this process, right? And so when you start to recognize these pathologies, these pathological ways of like ascribing agency to people who may not have it in, this, in a certain kind of way, that's a failure to understand actually. And that expresses a powerlessness that he wants us to kind of overcome or to try to, to, try to work against by like, you know, reframing how we think of things. And it's not going to be, you know, at the end of the day, we get we get finally to become the, the philosopher who feels nothing, right? He thinks that the the joy is part of the story from the from the beginning, and that's that's never going to go away. And even like the the best philosophers, Spinoza included, surely, right? Like, we're we're stuck with these passions. Like, we we're not going to get rid of them anytime soon. Let me let me run uh run this by you and see if this works. So if we stick with the example of you know me being dumped by somebody. Is there a difference between them telling me why they dumped me? And in the back of my mind, I think if I had done this rather than that, this wouldn't have happened. Or, you know, they're not being upfront with me with why they did it. But if you understand causes, if you understand the cause, then it seems as if reason also would not, you know, find itself thinking it could have been any other way. And so it seems like, you know, it's the, the grasping of necessity, not mm -hmm. just causes that would, you know, mm -hmm. do some of the work of alleviating these sad affects. Because you can understand the cause, but if you think that there's contingency, like mm -hmm. if I turned left rather than right, then that still represents itself to you as a lack of your own power. Especially because yes. you can't go back in time and do anything about it. <laughs> so yeah, you're just yeah. fixated on this sad passion. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so for Spinoza, like I said, strict determinist, right? He just thinks that contingency isn't a thing. He just thinks that that's not real. He thinks that when we start talking about things as being contingent, what we're talking about is our lack of understanding, right? Like, you know, things are always causally determined. And like, when you say like, I could have turned left or could have turned right, he's like, yeah, but you did one of those. And you did one of those for a reason. You might not be aware of those reasons, right? And so like his critique of free will, the line is that we're conscious of our actions and our desires, but not of the causes that determine us to have that desire, the causes that determine us to act in that way. So like, I think part of the reason why I find this attractive, this, this way of thinking about things, is that I think that he's right that understanding things is to understand their causes and understand their determinism, their necessity. I don't know what it is to say that I understand something just as contingently could have gone otherwise. Like, I don't know if that, I don't know what that means to say that that's understanding something. I think about this a little bit as being like, what does it look like to make sense of human actions, to make sense of human behavior? And I think that we need to say something like, you know, I I don't know, maybe this is a too Spinoza-pilled, and I can't think outside (laughs) this anymore. Um, But, like, I don't know what it would mean to say, like, you know, I'm going to try to make sense of someone's actions or their behavior, you know, to make human life intelligible. But also say that, you know, things sometimes happen for no reason, or it could have been otherwise, or that there's contingency. Like, I just can't, I can't get that anymore. That, to me, sounds like something like saying, at a certain point, I'm just going to have to say, oh, I'm going to accept for no reason as a reason. And that's not, that's not actually satisfying. Yeah, I mean, so you say, you mentioned this critique of free will, and yet this chapter, chapter four of the ethics, is called of human bondage, right? And it is, you know, in many ways, I mean, it's too simplistic to say that it's a that it's a kind of like practical guide, but there is an extent to which Spinoza is trying to uh, to demonstrate the ways in which we are less, because we're never going to be fully free, but the ways in which we are less bound to some of these sources of of human bondage. And he uses the term freedom, right? At the end of chapter, at the end of book four, right, he starts going on about this figure called the free man, right? The free man mm-hmm. who thinks of nothing less than death. Um, and right. so I guess it may, may, might be useful. Which is so Yeah, cool. which is just <laughs> extremely based, yeah. Um, but Sorry, Heidegger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Good, good. Guy in the Heidegger joke. Yeah. This is good. Heidegger, the least yeah. free man in the history of philosophy. <laughs> Think, thinking a lot about that. Yeah, thinking like... <laughs> A real lot about it. Uh, but I guess then what, given that critique of free will and given the presence still of this figure of like the free man and the attempt, and you've already touched a little bit on what this might look like, but I wonder if it would be just worth kind of being clear about what Spinoza means by freedom, given this necessitarian deterministic account, um, given everything we've said about the power of the affects. Yeah. All right, so I think the way to start to get into this is to, to I just wanted to point out a couple of things that he says earlier in, in part four before he gets there. He says things like that the person who's free or someone who has virtue, right, who, who, who lives according to the dictates of re- reason, what do they want? Well, they want for themselves exactly what they would want for everybody else, and they want it for everybody else as well, right? He thinks that at this fundamental level, what we are is the striving to persevere in our being, to exist, to act, to increase in our power, to experience joy. And he just thinks that the best way to do that is in concert with others. And by, you know, in, in enhancing the power of others, by, by producing joy for others as well, like in, in common. And so, like, he thinks that that's an unavoidable conclusion to come to. Like, that, that you realize at a certain point that you can't do this by yourself, that you need others, and that it's actually good for both of you. It's good for all of us to live together in this sort of, this sort of harmonious way. Um, so that like, 
when you're like, you know, what does it look like to be a free person? Like he says things like, well, yeah, the, the free person, there's like a, a quote here from part four, 36 and 37 is like um, uh, what, what, where a lot of this kind of starts to crystallize. He writes, the greatest good of those who seek virtue is common to all and can be enjoyed by all equally. In the scolium, he's like, you know, when each seeks advantage for himself, then men are most useful to one another, right? Man is a god to man. As people are reasonable, they want to help each other. And the good that everyone desires is also desired for others. And in practical terms, like, one of the other ones, propositions that's super important here is, is 46, where he says, well, he who lives according to the guidance of reason strives as far as he can to repay the other's hate, anger, and disdain toward him with love. Right, that like this is like a a, a weird, I think practical co- uh, consequence of of this way of thinking. Isn't right? that He's just like, Jesus? <laughs> oh yeah, the Christ, the Christ of philosophers, right? Yeah, we all know this. Oh, oh. <laughs> I forgot that's the Liz, right? Doesn't the Liz? Yeah. Say? yeah. I mean, it is an account. It is an, an account. To, it's an attempt to give a rational account of love thy neighbor as thyself, instead of it just being a kind of you know scriptural command, right? Is it is, I think, an attempt to say, well, no, this is why it's actually advantageous, simultaneously, personally, and communally advantageous. Uh, those are inextricable for Spinoza, for you know, to love thy neighbor as thyself. It might also be helpful here to, to counterpose them a little bit to Hobbes, right? Yes, because thank they're you. so I'm, close in I'm so really, many ways. This is what I'm really excited about. <laughs> but like this, like like this is like a really basic difference between him and Hobbes that I think is super important, right? So for Hobbes, like the increase in my power, that's going to come at someone else's expense. For sure, right? Like, power is a zero-sum game in the Hobbesian atomistic world. And for Spinoza, he just doesn't think it works like that, right? He thinks that, like, actually power and joy form these, like, positive feedback loops, these circuits, wherein, like, the more I'm able to help others, the better it is for me. Yeah. And, like, you know, it's not this sort of, yeah, it's not this zero-sum game. One of the ways of putting it is that, you know, Hobbes says very clearly in in De Chive that men prefer dominion over friendship, right? Like... (laughs) It's like, it, like you know, obviously oh, wow. pe- people will have friends and stuff, right? But if you just look at like what we would rather, all things being equal, if we could just choose between dominion over people and friendship and friendship with them, we would choose dominion. For Spinoza, it is the precise opposite, right? It's, it's friendship that is actually the highest power, right? It's not just, be, it's not a moral claim against dominion, right? Like Spinoza doesn't make any moral claims. Um, it's not a moral claim against dominion. It's a claim about what's more what power increasing and what is more joyful and that is what accords with our nature exactly what accords yeah. with our nature doesn't he say that like true knowledge makes inconstant unchangeable people confident and have trust one another where everyone refrains from harm out of the fear of doing more harm yeah yeah i thought that was nice <laughs> yeah definitely well, there's a lot of lines that you read and you're like that sounds really nice but like what's the non-hippie reading that he's providing here you know what i mean because <laughs> there's a lot of things that sound kind of hippie like you know it's like kind of granola and you're like no 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 he actually means something i think like way more politically potent and was granola invented by hippies or is that what they became that's a good mm. question, actually. I'm not sure what the priority well, is. I know, the given that granola, you know, accords with the nature of hippies, it doesn't matter if it was yeah. invented by them or yeah. not. It that's true. Where we're supposed yeah. to end up. I yeah. was just thinking that's kind of sad for. I mean, they deserve it, but it's a little sad for that generation that they became granola became their word. <laughs> like they didn't do anything else. It was inevitable, however, based on their. It's true. Oh, completely inevitable. How they were exercising their power. Yeah. Well, also, the hippie movement didn't exist for the sake of granola, mm. right? So that's also, we can also rule that out in making history intelligible. 
But going back to what you were just saying, Owen, like the this friendship dominion contrast is really interesting in part two, because like he actually thinks that like these forms of dominion are actually pretty weak. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this is a lot of what he talks about in the political treatise in like the third chapter on sovereignty where he's like, look, the only way you can like have someone in your power, like there's only like a few ways that that happens and they're not reliable. They're not very they're not secure. They're not stable. And like the minute there's like any imbalance, like the whole thing goes falls apart and everyone always retains their natural right. So like, you know, even this like relation between like citizens and the sovereign, like that's not something to like really long for. Like that's yeah. that, that, yeah, he says he, he, that, that fiction of like hyper security that like Hobbes gives, he just thinks that that doesn't even well, work. Well, yeah. And it's not yeah. as constant. Right. And, and he makes that distinction between free union, like a free union and right by conquest or like a civil order mm-hmm. that's created through a, a free union or, and a civil order that's created through the right of conquest. And he says like the problem with the right of conquest or any civil order that's established purely through coercion and conquest is that it does? Is that it doesn't take away the conditions for rebellion? It actually creates the conditions for rebellion, and then just tries mm. to police those conditions from erupting. You know, whereas like an actual robust civil order is one in which, and this is such a beautiful claim, is one in which the causes for rebellion are absent. Not rebellion is absent, as most other political mm. philosophers will, <laughs> you know, will argue. The absence of rebellion is that the causes for it, and, not, and by that he doesn't mean that like moral rules were broken. He means that the material causes for rebellion have been addressed and are not there. And that's just, you know, one of those points where you can see why materialists love Spinoza. Right. So I wanted to ask about this because I know, Gil, you have thoughts about how easily people try to like make this sort of like materialist reading of Spinoza happen. And you had some doubts about that because I did wonder like, what is a cause for him? Like there's this way in which if you're a realist, then like there's a way of thinking about causes or there could be some, there's numerous ways, but like, it seems like if you want to have a strong determinist view like that, then you might have to like adopt a kind of strong view of like causal mechanisms and systems and so on, which I'm cool with, but (laughs) I'm just, I'm like, it's something tells me that's like not necessarily what he's after. So like what causes do we know? Like, what are we trying to understand? So first of all, uh, all things are possible through God. So you might want to jot that down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sweet. That's the that's the first and most important cause is God, uh, which is the imminent and not transitive cause of all things. You started us out by asking me about the materialism relation. Like as you all know, I gave this paper on materialism in Spinoza a little while back, and I was like, I just don't know if it makes sense to call Spinoza a materialist given like his monism, right? Where he doesn't think that bodies or minds have either have any priority over the other. And usually I think when we talk about materialism, we mean some kind of priority to, to bodies or to bodily relations, material relations or something like this. And I just don't know if that works in Spinoza who instead I think kind of wants to say that no ideas and, and, and bodies or like, you know, social material relations, ideal relations, like they're all the same thing just viewed from different perspectives. So it was kind of a quibbling point. I'm worried sometimes that I'm a pedant and a scholastic, but I'm not sure. A school, um, a schoolman. I'm maybe a schoolman. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the causal thing, so the reason I think this is powerful, though, is because it is the idea of like cause or power that runs across both of these attributes, to use his language, right? That like the same causal structure, the same logical structure of necessity, of production, of the generation of effects, following from nature's like that's the same whether we're talking about bodies or minds right and so 
which ones do we know? Uh, we've, we know our own natures to some certain degree. Um, and then we know how that those natures are modified in our interactions with others. This can start to give us a sense for what kinds of things, you know, when they positively affect us. Like, even if I'm confused, right? Like, Owen and I met 10 years ago. I didn't understand him at all. But I knew he made me happy in some way. Aww. I was like, there's an agreement there, right? There's, a, there's, something, there's something like a relation of composition or of unity that forms there where I can start to then begin to develop an idea of what this external nature is. And, and Spinoza just thinks again that like, the more we do that, like the more we realize that we've got tons and tons in common, right? Like I think one of the things to emphasize for Spinoza is that like, we human beings, cross the board, have so much more in common than we have that, that ought to actually divide us. That in fact, most of our natures are shared and in common. Um, and that like, coming to understand that and thinking about what it would look like to build social institutions and uh, modes of social organization that are consonant with that instead of you know departing from the premise that like actually what we're going to need to do is like you know try to police our differences in some way i think is is what he would call like the virtue of a of a state or of a commonwealth like that's where we get real security or stability not just from like from you know virtue. imposing through force like a, a police state in a sort of hobbesian way two quick things i can see why the sort of hobbesian picture doesn't work for spinoza because he would he would say and you know i'm translating for myself this actually becomes a political state that is almost filled with nothing but passions and affect if you know that you need you know this sort of brutal securitization in order to hold this you know, polity together then you are in no way self-determined you're not following the dictates of reason you're responding to your paranoia you're responding to your fear you're responding to literally what you don't know about what other people are doing and you're know, viewing them as contingent atoms that need to constantly be corralled etc nice. on the other hand or not on the other hand the second thing that i realized is that you know what happens with Spinoza's picture here is even our base definition of politics absolutely changes. Politics is not primarily contestation. It's not primarily agonism, it seems, for Spinoza. At least that's not what he would count, what reason would counsel. Politics is you know, generating and discovering and grasping what we hold in common. And so when I think about our mm. contemporary moment, I actually, while reading this, I started thinking about culture war in the United States and how the culture war is just passions and affect tearing all of us apart. And there are times when I indulge in because you know, I look at far-right racism and I'm like, I actually would like to see them lose, but I don't see a coherent polity following from you know, this feeling of being determined by what these other people are doing and saying. And also, so, the culture war makes us sad, no? Oh, so clearly we yeah. don't understand. All of us. The no one's happy about the, it. Yeah, but clearly we don't. Like, this is the problem with it is that we don't understand the causes of like why this is happening to us because no one act involved actually want... I mean, some of us as individuals want to change things, but the dominant paradigms of the culture war are not interested in changing anything. Yeah. So like that means so that means that we're not talking about the causes of these pathologies and we are all extremely sad like that's how i feel about it, it doesn't make me happy it doesn't bring me joy no the, ever. Cu the culture war is a battle of the inadequate ideas right like yeah. it's, Ooh, uh, a, it's i like a, that it's Ooh. a battle or a contest of ideas that are like mostly a mix of imagination and ideology and tend to be like radically disconnected from the from actual 
causes, right? From material causes. But what's important in Spinoza's picture is we can't be moralistic about it and say that this is because of this or that bad individual. Like, this is yeah. what I get, you know, like, you know, squishy about with Spinoza insofar as there isn't a moralism there of saying, like, these are these bad people who are engaging the culture. The culture also does follow from our nature yeah. insofar as right. we are impassioned, affected creatures. Yeah, with inadequate Wait, ideals, sque- yeah. Is squishy sh- a bad word for you? I use squishy in a positive sense. You seem to be using it as in a negative I sense. I think, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about philosophical is firmness it- and solidity. So nice. I'm just wondering what kind of passion squishiness is in yeah, your nice. Oh, a sad passion. Okay. Not, a sad <laughs> fan, not a fan of being affected with squishiness. No, thank you. That's fair. Yeah. Well, this is why, like, this is... Yeah, for no, me, it's I totally joy. agree with... That's all. <laughs> squishy is joyful for Lillian. Um... Yeah, no, this is right, Will. Like, and so this is one of the things that I think is so interesting. And this is, yeah, I wanted to, my other main beef actually with the Spinoza's take up in like the Marxist tradition in the latter half of the 20th century is less to do with the worry about materialism and more to do with the way that they kind of give us this very rosy picture about like joy and affirmation and positivity, which is very granola to use Owen's language, right? But I think that it, it misses this very important part of Spinoza's whole account, which is, as you say, like, actually these passions are basically unavoidable, right? Like we will always be subject to passions. And as he says, like insofar as people are subject to passions, they can be contrary to one another, conflicts are gonna arise. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, he begins the very first chap- very first paragraph of the very first chapter of the political treatise, He's like, look, philosophers typically conceive of human beings as like totally different than what they actually are, right? They have these like weird idealizations where they're like, oh, it's a rational animal. And he's like, where? Show me, wh- show me like the rational creature, right? I look around and I see people who are like passionate and confused and conflictual, right? And so like thinking about how this reframes our thinking about politics, like it's no longer a matter of condemning, right? People's vice- vices, right? Or whatever that looks like for having passions, he's like, there's a beautiful line where he's like, I'm trying to think about these, these, these sad passions, these affects, um, envy, hatred, pride, pity, and other agitations of the mind, not as vices of human nature, but as properties pertaining to it in the same way as heat, cold, storm, thunder, and such pertain to the nature of the atmosphere. And he's like, do those things, do those things suck? Yes but it's very silly to just get mad at them, right? It's, it's, very, yeah. it's very silly to be mad that there's thunder. Well, that's why the political treatise, you know, it starts from the premise that the passions are why we have to build civil orders, right? Like, if, if mm. everybody was guided by reason, we could actually just live, like, a stateless state in the broadest possible sense, right? A kind of stateless existence. But because, you know, it seems to be that, well, inevitably, it's not just seems to be, inevitably, we have a mix of inadequacy and adequacy in our ideas. And to some greater or lesser degree, we are passional creatures. Well, it looks like we're going to need a civil order. But maybe we can do it in a way that is not as, what's the, what's the best way to describe it? Not as vertical as the Hobbesian state is, right? But one mm-hmm. that actually has a much richer, deeper sense of commonness. But I, I wanted to actually, if I, I could just move on really quick, because before we go beyond it, um, I want to bring this cultural war thing back to the question of ideology mm-hmm. critique, which I know, mm-hmm. Gil, is something that interests you and is another one of those kind of facets of Marxism and historical materialism that, that Spinoza seems to appear in. Because I think that there are some pretty, I think, straightforward contributions to be made to the idea of ideology critique in the idea that for Spinoza, the idea of just like lifting veils and living in the truth, right? And, 
you know, the idea that, well, what we really need to do is to get all these confused people to no longer be confused and to, you know, to have a clear and transparent picture of, of social reality, then like we're on our way to, you know, an improved social formation or something. So he doesn't like think that. And I think that one of the resources that he provides is, is he helps us to think about how it is that, well, that's not really how ideas changing works. They don't work, it doesn't work through revelation. Um, it works through another idea overpowering a certain idea mm -hmm. that you have, a more powerful or potent or joyful idea overpowering the inadequate, sad, shitty, fucking bigoted ideas that you currently have, you know what I mean? Which are making you sad. Trust me, you'll see when this joy overpowers them, you will see. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, you yeah. like, you will see, I promise you'll you. And see. like that to me yeah. is just, that's one of the things I always find the most exciting about Spinoza is kind of replacing this revelatory model of ideology critique with like resources for thinking about an ideology critique, which is less of a critique really and more of a kind of, I don't know, an alternate presentation and overpowering of a certain set of ideas, but not through, you know, does that make sense? Like not through persuasion and revelation. I mean, yeah, it seems to me also that there's like a, an intervention being made with talking about like inadequate ideas as opposed to f like false yeah. ideas. Yes. So like, mm -hmm. so because I, I'm like strongly partial to like, I like the idea of like things being true or not true like i'm not somebody who like thinks we can't talk <laughs> about the truth just to be clear yeah. but so i do think some ideas are actually false but when we talk about ideology you're talking about as you said imaginations and affects like a manner of making sense of mm -hmm. things and the reason politics is so hard particularly in a polarized context is that it's the case that all of the, these formations of inadequate ideas like as a whole as a kind of common sense or as a as an ideology there usually is like something true but inadequate that is being mm -hmm. expressed mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. an ideology emerges around it and that's what makes politics so hard because you're not dealing with just straightforwardly false things in like a black and white sense if i can like use that kind of metaphor it's actually usually that there's there's a problem that people are orienting themselves around and they're doing it in ways that are harmful or whatever and and that's what's hard because it's like that's how you get these like competing seemingly competing facts mm -hmm. that people build different ideologies around and those facts can actually be true you just like don't have adequate ideas about the causes for them or or whatever and it can if that if that I don't know. Yeah. Helps yeah. to make sense of why it would be a different way of talking about ideology. Yeah, especially uh, pushing, you know, what um, Owen's pushing back against the sort of, you know, the idea of ideology critique is about revelation. You know, so I'm going to talk about like the research I'm comfortable talking about. Say you are faced with someone who has racist ideas. We are now learning that it actually doesn't work being like, you see, that's a racist idea, you <laughs> yeah. racist, racist. It, 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 you know, yeah. rarely <laughs> does it work that, you know, in that revelation, they're like, oh shit. It. Let's do Afro socialism. Not seen that happen yet. <laughs> but like, you know, when Owen was talking about your know, more potent, more joyful idea, I know this isn't what you meant, but I couldn't help but think about some of those like cringy movies about race where the racist like tries fried chicken with a black family. <laughs> and like, oh, oh no. My God. <laughs> and they start hearing the music, like, oh, oh, no, our listeners can't see it, but I'm like kind of dancing a little oh, bit. Like, Will is <laughs> dancing. Go to the I'm barbecue and then you realize the error of your racist ways. Yeah, yeah. it's like Ooh, this macaroni and cheese. Hey, hey. <laughs> but I do think, you know, I, I just wanted to make that joke. I do think something about that makes sense, though. 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so if it's about grasping the causes, it's not about simply saying, look at this distorted thing you believe. Go fix yourself. Go yeah. do your own research. It is so what's And become fully transparent point? to yourself as yeah. well. Just no, make exactly. sure that's the... Uh, that's why Fred, Fred, Fred Hampton was very clear, right, that you don't fight capitalism with other kinds of capitalism or with critiques of capitalism. You fight capitalism with socialism. You fight it with solidarity. Yeah, yeah. and I think that the, the solidarity angle is like what actually starts to get at this, right? And so like, I remember I was talking with Owen about uh, anti-Semite and Jew at some point in that start text. And like at some point we were just talking, it's like the anti-Semite is such a sad figure in this like very Spinozist sense, like just so confused. Like, just does not understand the nature of their own situation, have misidentified the the, the uh, supposed problem. The causes of their causing, misery are completely the opaque of their to sadness. them. Yeah. They've completely confused, completely inadequate ideas. You know, just saying that to someone, just being like, hey, you're an idiot, that's wrong, is very, very, it's not helpful. It's bad, right? yeah. Just in pra- pra- Practically speaking, it doesn't help. What does help in a lot of cases is, though, saying something like, here is actually a better account a more for you empowering account of the nature of your of your of your situation right one that actually gives you leverage gives you something to work with in terms of you know liberating yourself from your conditions of of deprivation the thing that's always tricky about spinoza which your questions from the beginning have kind of been pointing at is this like on the one hand, he's got this like firm commitment to rationalism, and he does say things like, you know, we ought to be living according to the guidance of reason. At the same time, you know, passions and inadequacies are unavoidable. He says there's this line that I, I blew me away uh, when I was reading over this yesterday, where he says something like, it's very clearly experience teaches us that it's no more in our power to have a sound mind than to have a sound body, right? Like, we just don't have it in us to just be like, oh, I'm going to think right now. Oh, I'm just going to like have as powerful a body as I desire. That's just not how this works. So this tension, I think, that he's so sensitive to, where like he wants us to try to develop more understanding because he sees that that's where the locus of joy and empowerment is. And then like maybe, as, as Owen was saying, like in retrospect, I can recognize what was sad about my misunderstanding. But it, you know, from within that moment, like it's very difficult to know exactly how to leverage it. I mean, there's a lot of like psychological things that that resonates with I mean like if you think about something like social anxiety where you'll just be thinking that there are all these things happening and in the moment it doesn't seem like I mean I guess if you have a lot of experience with it it, you probably start to recognize this is anxiety when it's happening but sometimes one is taken aback and you're like oh this person is like I'm experiencing this very strangely I don't know what to do and then you don't notice it. You don't realize that the big picture is like you're feeling very anxious until later and you're like shit that might not have been at all what was happening, but, and this is the cause of it, but in the moment I couldn't orient myself out of it by acknowledging the cause. And so there's a way in which that lack of acknowledgement in the moment is kind of determined by like how you're set up right then. And then later you can like understand it better. And I feel like there's lots of like social and psychological experiences like that which is why when I read it I wasn't like oh this is just like idealism and the straightforward sense that I usually Mm -hmm. like would associate with that like there's something more going on with the causes 
what's beautiful about it is with Spinoza and this understanding of causes is that you might think when I was first reading this, I thought, so does Spinoza think the individual can just do this reasoning on their own? But then, you know, I got to that line that, you know, Gil read and, you know, with things like social anxiety. Well, he's actually describing reason also as a faculty of social capacity. Mm-hmm, that to mm-hmm. to be reasonable, to discover the dictates of reason, it turns out I actually cannot do that outside of some engagement with affects and powers that are external to me, you know, hopefully a joyful capacity. And I love this because this changes the, the nature of reason from something that's just in my head that I do squirreling away. And in fact, other people are in the way of me doing that. It's actually, mm. I can only exercise and, you know, formulate and come to grasp reason in my engagement with other people. That, you know, that is when your reason, you know, shows its true capacity, which is, I, I take it, a different way of approaching reason than we often in our 21st century, which is like, do your research. You've got <laughs> Google. Like, get on the computer. So describing reason as, you know, sorry, and I'm stealing from Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one way, like, Spinoza might say that, but in the other way, Spinoza would be like, you obviously don't understand people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you've <laughs> never met a person, obviously. Like the, facts the and phrase, feelings are very facts really... don't care about your feelings is an inadequate idea. Yeah, it's like good, good luck with your feelingless relationship to facts. Yeah. yeah what are you talking about? Your yeah. affectless mind. Reason is like trans-individual. I was going to say I'm stealing that from Etienne mm-hmm. Balabar, but it seems like we're organically being led there. Mm-hmm. That you know, reason is something that we share in between one another. Even if it's not subsumed in the collective, it's impossible without you know some form of sociality absolutely no and this is why like i do think like you know this is why it makes so much sense that spinoza would be an attractive thinker for these like socialist and communist theorists precisely because like you know these powers of reasoning of understanding but then also of like entering into entering into formations that like actually empower us physically as well like these are all totally dependent on like collective modes of organization and and of and of sociality right and so like figuring out how to articulate them moment to moment is is part of the tricky thing because we're so like captured by passions so regularly but it is absolutely not the case that it's just this like isolated rational individual like you said well like that's that's a fiction and spinoza would say a disempowering one right like if you if you think that that's what the nature of reason is you're going to be you're doing it wrong you're going to be doing it wrong and you're going to do less you're going to be able to do less if you operate according to that fiction yeah and it's not it's not black and white too it's a question of degrees right like it's not like it's not possible in a sort of solitary way to you know, exercise reason in some capacity, but the constancy and the extent and the kind of richness of that of that process of reasoning and of your your becoming active of your rational self is just going to be much more attenuated, much weaker, much you know, in the absence of others, right? Yeah, I mean, it's one other way to put it. I think is that like I just take it for granted at this point that like all knowledge is socially produced, right? Like there just yeah. is no. Like all knowledge production is social knowledge production, right? Like where, like, and so like even like the the example that you gave, Will, of like the kind of silly image of just like go to Google and do your research. It's like, all right, well, what does that mean? That I'm going to access resources from somewhere. Someone had to have done this work, right? This is still social knowledge Mm -hmm. production. Thinking in a Spinozist way in this more kind of trans individual, like you said, you know, Etienne Balibar, also Jason Reed has been elaborating this. This way of thinking kind of starts to 
I think give the lie to our habit of like attaching proper names to things in this in this really kind of restrictive way. I feel weird putting my name at the top of a paper because I'm like I didn't just like come up with these ideas by myself. There's so much, so many people contributed to this, and I don't know how to do an acknowledgement section that's capacious enough, really, mm-hmm. to 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 to, get, to do justice to the fact that like we have this sort of tendency of thinking about individuals as though they are kind of sui generis. And that's just misleading, right? And instead, we need to trace them back to their, you know, the causal nexus that gave rise to them, which is very complex, right? But doing so is, is, is more honest, and it gives, it gives rise and to... And it's more joyful. It's more joyful, and it gives rise to these, like, better, like, healthier and more empowering ways of relating to others, yeah. which I think is what he actually just wants us to see. I love when he, when he says that the good which man wants for himself and loves he will love more constantly if he sees that others love it. He will strive to have the others love the same thing. And there's another place in book three where he talks about, uh, like, when you enjoy something, when you derive joy from something, and someone else, like, whose nature agrees with you also derives joy from it, that your joy is is increased in constancy and that it is enhanced. And again, we couldn't possibly be further from from Hobbes here in this one. <laughs> but I, <laughs> who's like, well, only one of us can have this. I'll kill exactly. you. Exactly. But there's something to just so appealing about that the kind of social ontology. Right? I hate the O word. Account of sociality that he. <laughs> o word. I hate the O word. Yeah. <laughs> Owen. I don't mind Owen as an O word. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, Owen's no, actually, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's just so f- like fucking free of imperatives, and so full of like reasons why things are actually better a certain way on all of these different fronts, why they're so enhancing, so enhancing of your own experience, so enhancing of your own ideas, so enhancing of your own powers. Like these are the reasons that ethics should matter to us, not because of some rules we might break. And I just think that honestly, just at a level of persuasion, there's just something infinitely, in my opinion, more persuasive about that, about doing ethics and politics that way than about like trying to tell people what's right and wrong for them to do. Okay, so I'm feeling the joy really reach in Apogee here, so I'm going to do the kill joy thing. Let's do it. And maybe prove that there's a role for sad passions in intellectual engagement. So Uh what I'm struggling Mm -hmm. with here is with the necessitarianism and you know the the mode of approach that Spinoza has. I see how Spinozism can be really good um, as a diagnostic tool of saying, well, look at this, look how, look how this is not working, or look how this is frustrated, et cetera. What I'm unclear on is how you can get something normative out of spinicism. Where does the ought come from if you were saying something like, and when many people use ought, that implies contingency. If you ought to do something, that means there's a chance you would not have done it. If you would not have done it, then what type of causality are we talking about? And so what I want to conjecture is that whether spinicism is great for diagnostics, but we are really pushing it to try to get some sort of strong normativity out of it because that might actually cut against the very powerful diagnostic tools that we have. Well, he makes a distinction between good and evil, right? But, but what is good for him is not, you know, it's what brings advantage, right? Personal and collective advantage. And what's evil is what is disadvantageous, what saddens us, what decreases our powers of, uh, of thinking and acting. But uh, yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by an account of normativity there, because it's true, it's not. There is a sense in which there is a prescriptive element if 
you don't want to live a life of bondage and sadness, right? Like these are the conditions, like this is what you ought to do if you don't want to live a life of, you know, just captivity to sad passions, then like these are what like ought to be done. But I guess not a very, a, a very deflated sense of the ought as in like, there will be a violation of a particular, I don't know, a particular moral law and then punishment. I actually think it's really helpful to think about something like punishment it's way more helpful, to, in my opinion, to think about it in terms of understanding the causes of why particular acts are done, rather than getting into the language of like judgment and punishment. I think if we had a Spinozist normative framework in our society, there probably wouldn't be prisons, or at least there wouldn't be very bi they wouldn't be very populated. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> that's not actually accurate to his account in the political treatise, but. Yeah, you get the point about about his critique of of, of judging. Right. Well, I so you're right, Will. That this is a this is a problem. Right. I I definitely agree. And I think that one of the things that starts to come into focus, like he's such a singular thinker in so many ways. And one of them is like he looks like a stoic sometimes, but then it actually does turn out to all be about joy. So he's like a hedonic stoic or something. And then similarly here, he says things like, yeah, we what we do is we seek our own advantage, what's useful for us. And like, that's virtue, that's good, that's fine. But then it's also like unselfish in this kind of important way. So like, what does an unselfish self-advantage ethics look like? And I think mm -hmm. he's trying to explain to us that it's just true that the selfish versions of seeking our own advantage are just worse for us. It actually doesn't work as well, right? That the unselfish, communally invested efforts that seek to produce joy and understanding and empower others is actually just better for ourselves. And so, like, there is an imperative there. He thinks that that's what we would do if we understood better. And he's trying, he's trying to articulate it in a way that's going to work so that we start acting more in that direction it's not the same as being like there's a moral law like owen said he just thinks that if if it is the case that what we do is we're if we are actually interested in seeking our own advantage this is a better way to go about doing that yeah but i don't but that is like maybe maybe pretty thin as a normative claim it, yeah it seems the the better conceptual vocabulary here is we're talking about health when we're mm -hmm. talking about mm -hmm. right, rather than talking about um, strong metaphysical ought. And so what is interesting here is I wonder if we as a group would be comfortable saying something like this. If we really buy into the Spinoza's diagnostic framework, we're comfortable with the claim that there are no moral facts in reality. We, we, sure, things agree with us and you know, help pre us preserve in our being, but I take when someone says there are moral facts and reality, there are things that just are wrong. They, you know, and yep. that is independent of my health, independent of how it constitutes me. And when I, I know a lot of our podcasts we deal with, you know, left thought and Marxism, I, you know, I think that this sometimes is a tension in Marxism for Marxism is because there are moral facts that we fight against this, or is it the claim that this simply is not, a, to be really brute about, a healthy way for us to live and conduct our lives? Right. And yeah. I do, I know we, uh, in our extra thing, we all, we're all making fun of moralism. But, you know, I do wonder if we, we lose something if we start from the position there are no moral facts, given how moralism interacts with some of our perhaps joyful affects. Uh, great. You know, so, yeah, yeah. Feeling it's, one is on the right side of history. It's a great point to mm -hmm. tease out. Yeah. 
So yeah, Deleuze writes in his little Spinoza book that like the way to understand good and bad as opposed to good and evil, right? The sort of like, you know, beyond the, the, the sort of standard moral categories in Spinoza. He's like, the model for understanding what we mean when we say something is evil for me is poison, right? It's poison. It's like something is poisonous to me. It's like, it's weird to say, you know, if I ingest some mercury or whatever that like, oh, the substance was evil, but it sure doesn't agree with my nature, right? And to that extent, like, I'm determined, I should I should strive not to encounter it, to minimize its effects, its abilities. And I, I think that there is a version of, you know, having a Marxist critique of capitalism that says, like, I'm not actually interested in, like, saying that, like, there's, like, a brute moral fact about the wrongness of this thing. It just sucks for us. It's just no good for us, actually. It does not, in fact, agree with our natures to have society organized in this way where everything is, you know, centered on the production and extraction of surplus value. It just disseminates sadness in every direction, just sad passions in every direction, you know, generated by this by this economic formation. Not just sad passions, but disempowerment, confusion, obfuscation, obscuring of the truth. Yeah, in some ways, I think there's a Kantian way that there's a more straightforward Kantian way to critique capitalism, which is that it treats people as means rather than ends in themselves, right? It's it's pretty much the opposite of like the kingdom of ends, right? The way that capitalism <laughs> turns every turns everyone and everything into a means of of accumulation. Um, and means. I, well, yeah, yeah, into a means, yeah. And I and I think that it's a strong critique, but I I think that I'm personally more drawn to the critique that it's. The, the idea, like you said, Gil, right, that it's that it's poisonous. And I don't know, maybe maybe this isn't a, a strong enough normative claim. And I actually think that that's a fair critique of Spinoza. But for me, it's a more affecting claim. Maybe This is just a speculative claim on my part, right? Just, I think it's a more affecting claim to say, to, to point out the various ways in which it is just so misery-inducing. And even the people at the top are fucking miserable. And, and like... Which is why they're all, like, going to space and yeah, shit. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like... And maybe that's a bit of a kind of a theoretical gambit at a certain point, because I don't know how I would prove that, right? But I, I think that the proliferation of sad relationships, of relationships of exploitation, of relationships where we don't derive advantage from one another, we just derive surplus value and profit, relations in which we're atomized and isolated, where we can't learn from one another, where we don't, there's no richness in our encounters with one another. Like, that is just, it's just a fucking disgusting totally sad and backward and shitty way to configure social life. Yeah, that, that's just more appealing to me and more strong to affecting as a critique to me than saying that it's, that it's wrong and we shouldn't treat people this way. I mean, I'm with it. I like, I like that. I wonder a little bit about the disease and health metaphor. Like, sure. yeah, I find that's myself totally using fair. it. That's like, totally I'm, I'm fair, not, yeah. like, I'm, like, I'm not saying no. Like, definitely not saying no. I mean, I think I've... I say things like I think things are morally diseased all the time. The language of pathology is occasionally attractive to me and has historically been attractive to like critical theory. And so I'm open minded about this, but I also just like wonder about the analogies of like at the level of the individual, like as an organism, I can become unhealthy. And that's it's kind of intuitive to me, like why as an organism my my mind and body can become unhealthy. And if you engage in like psychotherapy or whatever kind of treatment, there's a way of like rectifying the body. And, you, and this often in the mind, and this often comes as a result of better understanding. I just wonder to what extent you can blow up the metaphor, that met kind of metaphor to the level of society. And the problem is, is that like when it comes to a view 
like Marxism, this is a view that's committed to there being deep division in society. So you have to already be saying that it's not an organism. Like in my body, there's no parts that are antagonistic to each other. And then if you admit that there are deep divisions in society, then you're talking about a view in which there, there are deep, there are antagonisms within the social body, and you have to talk about the kind of ethics that would require to resolve antagonisms. And so I think there's a way to talk about health and ill health. I just think it's like not as straightforward from a political perspective as like, I think you can do it. I'm open-minded. I, I just think it's kind of like, there's, there's a way of maybe, like you can imagine social cohesion at a certain level but like we don't live in a cohesive society so you're kind of already like in a different theoretical terrain and i think that you guys are probably sympathetic i just feel like it's worth like flagging that because um then you do have to like come up with some norms to like justify to people that you're antagonistic with like why what you're doing is better and i think that's the problem and why i'm not so Mm. down with like like I, i can get with the health and ill health metaphor. But I, as you were talking, I was like, I, I agree. I also just like don't love the thin norms. Like I like norms and I think they should be capacious. I think like people building in maybe like a capabilities approach or you know, there's ways to maybe make some norms out of this. But I think it would, in my view, it would be desirable to find them because if I'm in a social antagonism and I need to get like reduce the risk of like confrontation or reaction and I need to like get my way. I need to like have a compelling, not just like you'll be happier at the end of this because you already think you're happy. I need to like Mm. also have some good reasons, consistent messaging as it were. And I think not to get too technical, we are going to require a meta-normative account of health. I, I know everyone yeah. in this podcast knows the uses that health can be put to can actually be downright scary actually. Totally. You know, when we're talking about, you know, cleansing the social body, um, these forces, you know, don't interact or articulate well with this broader organism. And so it seems like you you, you can't completely get away from it. And it, 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 what I am asking is like, does the Spinoza's picture offer us the metanormative or are we trying to read it in there so that this account remains you know useful to us this isn't me trying to do a call out this is like you know a a genuine question because i can see on the one hand someone imagining a version of health which is there are no more social differences like you know what does that mean where does that lead but it's so empty that Mm. it's unclear what that practically articulates out as until we see it or we Mm. could end up with the cultural revolution you know what i mean like there are a number of ways to like excoriate from the social body the things that are not sufficiently like with your idea of health and there's there there's risks there's ways in which that has obviously been used by the right to talk about like degeneracy and like Mm -hmm. the the pathology you know and there's and i can see why that would those would be sorrowful affects yeah but there's also sorrowful affects that emerge from the left and you know and yeah i think maybe will and i are thinking some of the same thoughts well, those kinds of awful events are just massive explosions of sadness, right? You know what I mean? Totally. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. no, like, I, I wouldn't see how you could possibly give any kind of Spinoza's justification for, for anything that, yeah, that doesn't expand commonness, that doesn't expand and enhance life communally. Just going back to one of the quotes that I brought up from before, right? Like he says, you know, hate is only ever increased when it's returned, but can be destroyed by love. Like he thinks that if we understand what it means to to reason in common and to try to live according to the dictates of reason, like 
yes, there's antagonism, but like it's not clear that the way to handle these differences at the level of the composition of the social body is through like an attempt at destroying differences. That just doesn't actually seem to work. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a really good question. Yeah. Because this is something I've like struggled with. I mentioned at the beginning, one of the reasons why I like thinkers or I'm drawn to thinkers like Spinoza or Machiavelli is because they try to give a, a, an account of like virtue, for example, without distinguishing between force and right, right? So both Spinoza and Machiavelli think force and right. To some extent, they collapse those two concepts and yet don't advocate for a kind of vicious, you know, uh, social reality, which is one which, you know, radically violent and hierarchical or something, right? So how do you end up with that without starting from a robust moral and normative starting point? But I do have, like, real worries about it because there is this little nagging thought in the back of my mind that you end up in a kind of nihilistic picture where all society's conflicts are are just kind of varying levels of power contending with one another. And it's impossible to actually distinguish in any really robust way, like which one of them is right and like which one of them is wrong. And, mm -hmm. and maybe that's just more of like a, a kind of personal thing. And I know people that would just say that that doesn't matter. Like that's a stupid question. But maybe one way of putting it would be to ask like, what, what do you actually win? Maybe Lillian, you've already started giving this answer because you pointed towards a kind of pragmatic answer. But like, what do you win if you are able, like, what does it get you to be able to just say something's wrong in a really normatively robust way? Like, is it just a pragmatic element that you suggested, Lillian, which is like, it's more persuade, I need to be able to persuade people, like, I need to be able to say, like, this is, this is what's right and this is what's wrong, or what happened to you is wrong and it shouldn't have happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what do you, because otherwise I, see, I don't see a lot of normative claims as, I don't see the force or power in them. Uh, we call lots of things wrong. It doesn't, it's just a, it's a sad passion. It's a sad claim, an inadequate idea. Like it doesn't, it doesn't actually change anything. It doesn't get us anything. So does that make sense? I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you think about norms as a sad passion because that like suggests to me that in the way that we're thinking about here, you've never experienced them as being powerful with other people. So, sorry, I, I just meant more like lamenting things that we think are wrong. You know what I mean? Like, I hate this. This is so right. bad that capitalism sucks and it's doing all these bad things, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I, but that to me, that just means that like, most of the way that we talk about norms tends to be from a position of being highly disempowered. So we just like mm -hmm. feel that leads to a certain kind of pessimism or like nihilism, as you were saying. And like, there is a way in which I just think that like you can construct norms with like also constructing positive affects around them, perhaps. I mean, to me, that's logically possible. Whether or not we can mm -hmm. we can yeah. achieve it or not is a different story. But it's like, you know, this is I one of the takeaways that, yeah. that I loved from some of like the labor republicanism stuff, where they started thinking about solidarity as a functional norm mm. because it enabled them to be to increase their power. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if you can cash that out, like analytically and you know keep that together but I found that to be like a nice thing because substantively that was like what an injury to one is an injury to all was mm. as a as a slogan mm. like people had a, a normative vision that like if you hurt this person you're also hurting all of us and we need to have a particular way of thinking about freedom together and that was a, a norm and it was a norm in contestation so 
I don't know how persuasive that is in the long run. I'm keen on it. Like I, I would like to cash this out because there has to be a way of talking about being an antagonism and having like um, a positive normative vision that feels ra- like feels rational to people. Like we're doing this for common reasons, um, and that seems to me what Spinoza would be like after. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. in putting it this way. But like if there's a problem in deriving norms, then I feel like you either need to articulate it further or maybe he just doesn't, I don't know his work in like the kind of depth it would require to extract this. But it just seems to me like there might be a project that one needs to accept by talking about the constructive of norms. And it might be that those things are not like, those kinds of projects are not always that inspiring in the way that you describe, but there could nonetheless be resources that one could pair with a this kind of account. Yeah, I, I know. I, I think to be fair to your and to Will's like original point too, like the account of norms I think you have in mind. I, I don't think I, I gave a very generous account of what, what normativity <laughs> does. Well, I think Spinoza is giving what doesn't look like a prescriptive or normatively rich account because it's so descriptive in its like presentation, right? He's just like, mm-hmm. here's what the reasonable person does, right? But I think that when you ask the question of like, what is this book trying to do? Like, why did he write this? That gives us like at a meta level sense for how there is a normative project where again like he thinks that if it's true that you know to the extent that I understand more I'm you know as in his language like I I more follow under the guidance of reason I strive to empower those around me to produce joy to to you know minimize hatred to to etc etc he I think is just trying to like render explicit for us that these things are true so that we can more actively and, and explicitly pursue them, right? It's a thin norm, I suppose, right? But like, you know, almost every one of these propositions could be read as like a, a uh, as like an imperative in a sense, right? Like these, these, are, these are true things about what it's like to relate to one another that when we are conscious of them can, can change, I think, in some small way, the, the actual concrete ways in which we relate to each other, I think, I hope at least. I know that I've felt this personally. By the way, Lillian, what you were saying about the the, the non-domination, like solidarity is a functional yeah, norm, that is beautiful. I like that a lot. That is yeah. really, really nice. Oh yeah, functional norm, that's my innovation. Thank you. That rocks. <laughs> and I think that that's very Spinozist in mm-hmm. a way, right? Like there's a, I think that we could give a Spinozist justification for it. That like, in fact, it is better and more empowering to, to onboard that as like a rule for life, as a rule for living. I think Spinoza would just say that we can give an account of why that's true in terms of how it actually functionally works and the sorts of effects that it generates, which is, which is different than sort of like, you know, if we're being Kantians, like to go back to Owen's very un- ungenerous construction of what a norm is, like deriving the moral law by sitting alone in, the, in my room. There's something else going on, I think, in this very practical working out of like how, how, how actually relations of empowerment work. Mm-hmm. I think this discussion has convinced me that maybe I'm, I'm thinking about Owen saying I hate the O word and all that. It would be much better to move from social ontology to social ecology. Hmm. You know, because even though Spinoza has some harsh things to say about lesser animals, I, I know the, the vegans out there would hate those bits. Where he's like, they don't have reason like us. We owe them shit. <laughs> but you know, the notion that we an injury even to the environment is an injury to all of us seems to be to be not just a more compelling, but you know, a more truthful way of understanding our constitution as reasonable creatures. You know what? Try to be reasonable when the environment falls out from under you. I dare mm-hmm. you to try to find some common notions when you're worried about where your water's coming from. 
And when so the I, ocean I, catches on fire. When, oh, yeah. It was hard for me to be reasonable when I saw that. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Your powers of thinking of and acting effort. are super diminished in that case. And so I love this notion of these common notions help us grasp a greater social body of which we are a part. And that does not mean, again, we subsume our individuality, but our individuality is only actually made possible mm -hmm. by being a part of this larger corporate body of social forces that, even though Spinoza doesn't quite go there, goes beyond other human individuals. And mm -hmm. grasping that seems to me to be a more powerful idea than the privations of hate, of despair, of pessimism that you know, tend more towards isolation and I can't do this, we can't do that, it is not possible. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what Eric Wright was saying when we talked about that episode where he was talking about like those passions also becoming self-fulfilling prophecies. There's a kind of, if you take like Spinoza's point about determinism somewhat seriously, then it becomes kind of clear why that's true, that you would have like isolation and the ideas that flow from isolate, the inadequate ideas, they're only going to be get more inadequate yes. ideas. And so yeah. there's a way in which when you mm -hmm. start saying like, this is all we can do or all we can hope for, then like there's, that's, I think maybe it's sort of articulating what a self-fulfilling prophecy politically mm -hmm. or interpersonally is. They're poor mm -hmm. building blocks for knowledge. All right, that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Philosophy. Um, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and are really grateful for your support. Uh, as we said, starting with the last episode, we're shouting at our patrons 20 at a time. And so we're all caught up starting with the earliest supporters. So today we'd like to thank Tim Larock, Hasnain Arabi, Rachel McKinney, T, David Klemperer, Centrally Planned Economy of Ideas, Dope. Santiago Mollis, <laughs> Dominic Cooper, Keegan Tan, Jacob Pierce, Alex Betzos, Mike Thomas, Michael Lane, Siren Coyle, Stephen Dozman, Olaf, Romeo Menard, Elliot Swain, Michael Trapp, and Jason Reed. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us like those lovely folks on Patreon at patreon.com slash left to philosophy and give us good reviews. Leave us a comment on your favorite podcast. Apps. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. -bye. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks. Take care.